please turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we are looking at verses 1 to 8. And I'm going to piggyback on some of the things that have already been talked about as, as to why it is that we struggle with assurance. You know, Mike spoke to that and Sean. We've heard some reasons why. And like I said, I'm going to speak to those things as well. You know, at times we, we lack assurance because the idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, sometimes it just seems so simple. Surely it can't be just that. I believe, I have faith, and, and I'm justified before God. I'm made right with God. It can't be that. It's just too simple. And we think those things perhaps because we don't really understand who we are and we don't see the excellence of Christ as we should. Because it is just that. And so we struggle. We have lack of assurance because we want to add things. We want to have our checklists. We want to make sure that we're doing this every day or we're abstaining from this every day. And what that ends up doing is causing us, uh, it causing us further despair. Because no matter what you do for that particular day, the next day there's going to be more to do. It's a never-ending cycle. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to do enough. And what does that end up causing? It causes despair. It causes that lack of assurance. And Paul is speaking here in Romans chapter 4 of those who are trying to do that, attempting to have assurance of their justification before God based on their merits. For Paul's audience, they have believed that it is possible that a man may be justified by his works. They have a distorted view of the great patriarch Abraham, which leads to this uh, faulty conclusion. They believe that he attempted to be right with God based on his merits, based on his works, his performance. And they're trying to do the same, that they, by their performance and by their works and by their own righteousness, they may be right with God. Christians attempt to do that today. You have those that, again, checking their boxes, making sure they do all that, is, uh, that they believe is necessary, having no assurance. We also lack assurance because of our sin. We often say, as David does, my sin is ever before me. I can't overcome it. No matter how much I try and I labor, it's, it seems that it, it always pops up. It's, it rears its ugly head at, at the most inopportune times. I think I'm doing well, and then I fail. And I fail with the same sin that I had failed with before. Surely I can't be a child of God because I keep, I keep messing up. This is a sin that haunts me. Well, Paul has something to say to us this morning. He has something to say to you. You who are laboring, trying to be right with God by your works, and you who struggle with your assurance because of your sin and the difficulty of overcoming it. He has something to remind us about when it comes to our right standing with God. And what is the basis of that? And so this morning, in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, we're going to look at, at the patriarch Abraham. Paul is using him as a great example. We're going to see Paul's observation of what he has observed. And he's going to call David as a witness as well. At our church, if it's okay, at our church, before we read the scripture, 
we stand together. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you this morning, and we ask that you would indeed give us assurance. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of how gracious that you are. Remind us of the provision, Father, that you have granted to us in Christ. He accomplished it all. Let us not look to ourselves, but to rely solely on him and his work. Encourage our hearts through this passage, and may your word go forth, accomplishing all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> now just to bring us up to speed a little bit as to what has been happening here in the book of Romans so that we understand the context of where Paul's at. Paul has spent a number of chapters already, and he's been indicting everyone. He's been indicting the Gentiles, he's been indicting the Jews, and he does it in a similar way as what Amos does. When you read the book of Amos, he begins in, in, in bringing judgment upon the surrounding nations for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke Moab's judgment, and then he goes to Ammon and others. And he anticipates that his Jewish readers are going to say, amen, amen, absolutely, bring the judgment. But then Amos turns around and says, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. For three transgressions of Israel and for four. And he turns it right on them. In a similar way, this is what Paul does. He starts out in chapter 1 indicting all the Gentiles. The Gentiles are those who have forsaken uh, the knowledge of God. They have turned to idols. They are unrighteous. They approve of the things that are against the law of God. They are filled with all kinds of unrighteousness, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as he says. He anticipates the Jewish readers are going to say, Amen. This is exactly right. But then Paul turns his attention to them and begins in chapter 2 speaking to them, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And so he turns his attention to the Jewish readers, and he says, You're no better. You're doing the same things, and yet you acknowledge that those who commit such atrocities, those who commit such sins are worthy of death, and here you are doing it. They are indeed stubborn. They have no excuse. They have unrepentant hearts. They're storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. They believe themselves to be right with God simply because they had the law of God, not necessarily because they were even doing anything concerning the law of God, but just because they had it and because they bore the name Jew. And because they had the, the sign of circumcision, they believed themselves to be the covenant people of God. They're good. There's nothing else that is necessary. And yet these are the very ones that Paul says, because of your sin and rebellion, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. 
And so Paul uses a number of verses here in chapter 3, as you go into chapter 3, in order to demonstrate that all people everywhere are guilty before God. Many of these passages are coming from the Psalms. Actually, every one of them are coming from the Psalms, except for one that comes from Isaiah. But here's what he says in chapter 3, beginning of verse 10, that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their hearts. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's indicting everyone. Jews, Gentiles, none righteous, not even one. He says very clearly that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And what is he doing? He is taking all the assurances of the Jews, of the Gentiles, and he's just removing the foundation of any assurance that they may have in any kind of work that they would do or even could do. And after he does so, then he gives them the greatest news. And it is the greatest news because I'm reminding my face that it's the greatest news. <laughs> you know, I'm very grateful to have been one of those students. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one of the things that Mike had told me as well was, you know, do you think it would be inappropriate to put little smiley faces in your notes to remind you to give your people a break before you assault them again? <laughs> it's wonderful news. <laughs> <laughs> and so Paul gives him the greatest news gives him the best news and he's, he's establishing Christ that is the sure and steady foundation he's the sure hope the steadfast hope the anchor for the souls he is the one that the righteousness of God is manifested in through faith his righteousness credited to you through faith all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, but being justified is a gift by His grace. It's not based upon merit. It's a gift. And it's only through faith. And so Paul says, towards the end of chapter 3, he asks the question, so where's the boasting? Understanding that justification is a gift of God, and it's not by merit, and it's by uh, the righteousness of another, where's the boasting? And the answer is, there is no boasting. There's nothing you can boast about. If one boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Because it's the Lord's doing. And so, either Paul is anticipating an objection to this, what all he's been saying. Paul, this doesn't seem to be in line with what we understand from the Old Testament. Or it could be that Paul is just going to further the argument even more. This is what the truth of God is. This is what the scriptures have foretold. The prophets have witnessed to this very thing, this very reality. And now he's going to take it even further. And he's going to use the great patriarch Abraham as the great example of everything that he has been saying thus far. That Abraham was justified not by his works, but on faith alone. Now if you think about... Uh, Abraham, and you think about how the Jews regarded Abraham. You know, going to some of the apocryphal writings, this is from the prayer of Manasseh. It's attributed to Manasseh. He says, Therefore you, O Lord, God of the righteous, 
have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. In the book of Jubilees, it says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. In the book of Sirach, it says, There were none like him in glory. You have John the Baptist who says to the religious leaders when they come to be baptized, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And don't say we have Abraham as our father. And that's the very thing that Jesus was saying of the religious leaders in John chapter 8. That's the very thing they said to him. We have Abraham as our father. But what did Abraham discover when it comes to having a right standing with God? And that's what Paul's using here. Here in chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. What did Abraham discover? So Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? What did he find? What did he come to understand? If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He says, If we assume that Abraham was justified by his works, if we assume that, then he does have something to boast about, but then he quickly denies even the possibility, and he says, but not before God. Why? Why would he say that? He's not even bringing out any, anything further. He immediately denies that that's even a possibility, and he does so because of what he previously said, according to the Scripture, that there are none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good. There's none who seek after God. All have turned aside. This is the lesson that Paul has given thus far, and that's why he denies even the possibility. All are guilty. This is the divine verdict. All are guilty. You don't find Paul saying, look how well Abraham did. And this is the example that you need to follow. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has hit the mark and not even Abraham. And yet the Jews had such, such uh, views of him as far as his life that, that there were none like him. Everyone like him in glory. A very faulty view of Abraham. If Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about. But the reality of it is, he doesn't. Not before God. And why? Because you're not justified by your performance. Or how well you do. You are justified in spite of you. In spite of who you are. He says in verse 3, he's going to go back to the Scripture. This is the, this is the authority. He goes back to the Scripture, and he asks the question, for what does the Scripture say? Or some of you translate like the King James. What saith the Scripture? If this is our authority, what does it say? And he takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. In order to prove this point, Paul just quotes the passage there where it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But if you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> and I'm going to read this so that we understand everything that has happened here. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, 
What will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up of Ur from Ur out of the excuse me, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer, and a three year old female goat, and a three year old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each, each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, or they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Now looking at this covenant that God has made with Abram, he has said, bring me these particular animals, let's cut them in half, set them each opposite one to the other. And this was, this was a custom that you, when you were making a treaty or a covenant, you would cut these animals, put them to the side, and you and the other person that you were making a treaty with or a covenant with would pass through together and you were making an oath uh, to the other. I promise to do this. I promise to uphold my word on this. But you notice something here, that God is making these promises to Abram. But he essentially says, Abram, you sit over there. And the Lord himself passes through. And as you read the book of Hebrews, the Lord swore by none greater. He made the oath to Abram, saying, this is dependent upon me to bring these things to pass. It is not dependent upon you. And he, that's what he was teaching Abraham. It's not that you have to do so much, you have to perform so well, you have to keep my word and this and do this and X, Y, Z. This is dependent upon me. And what does the text say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's what Paul is, is, is expressing to us here in Romans as he as he, quotes from Roman, as he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, that's the point that he's making. If you go back and you look, say, this is what he's saying to his readers. This is, this is not a situation in which the Lord rewarded Abraham because of anything he did. The Lord made the oath himself. This is dependent upon me. Almost very similar to how the Lord had uh, interacted with Moses 
In Exodus 33, when Moses keeps asking the Lord for more assurance and more assurance, and finally he says to the Lord, let me see your glory, show me your glory. But what does the Lord say to him? The Lord says to him, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I will be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. And what is he saying? It kind of recounts us back to Exodus chapter 3 when the Lord says to Moses then, I am who I am. This is my name. This is who I am. And then you have those very similar words in Exodus 33. I will be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. This is the very nature of God. And God was telling Moses even then, this is dependent upon me, not you. And that's the very thing he said to Abraham 400 years earlier. This is dependent upon me, not you. And so Abraham believed And it was credited to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And notice notice not only the, the point that Paul is driving home there, that Abraham was justified by faith and faith alone, but also you see the personal nature of, of this, this crediting of righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him. It wasn't credited to anyone else. It wasn't to Abraham and anyone else. It was credited to him. That is the personal nature of salvation itself, of justification, that when you believe, when you believe God, your faith is credited as righteousness. You. And it's a righteousness outside of yourself. It is a righteousness that doesn't originate with you. Just as with Abraham, it was a righteousness alien to Abraham. It was another's righteousness that was credited to him because Abraham had no righteousness to speak of. If the most revered figure for the Jews could not earn anything before God, what would make us think that we can? And that's the, that's the point he's making to his Jewish audience. If Abraham, the great patriarch, your forefather according to the flesh couldn't do it, what makes you think you can? What makes us think that we can? We can't. It's impossible. Because there will never be enough good that we can do. There will never be enough because God's standard isn't Abraham. God's standard is Christ. And we can't live up to that. This is why Paul is very emphatic here, laboring this point. We are justified by grace, and this justification is indeed a gift. And so, he uses Abraham as this great example. And then he moves on to some of his own observations here. So he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor or as a grace, but as what is due. So Paul is saying, in light of what we're talking about here, this is just a principle to understand. Uh, Very similar to, we could understand it in the sense of uh, an employee and employer. The employee works, he performs his duties that the employer has hired him to do, and at the end of the week, the employer pays him his wage. It isn't a gift. It's not a gift. He earned it. And this is what Paul is saying. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, as a grace, but as what is due. Now, if we just begin to think about what has been said up to this point, 
that God has declared Abraham to be what he in and of himself was not and did so contrary to what was due, when we look at what it is that is due, the very reward that we have gotten or that we are due to have is justice. That's what we earn. Because the wages of sin is death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is due is justice. If we think that, and this is something to, to consider some of the mindsets that we have. If we think that we can do this and we can do this and we can do this and God is going to be favorable to us as a result of that, we are making God a debtor to us. Lord, I have done this and I have done this and I have done this. Therefore, you need to do this. And God is a debtor to no one. None. But that's what we do. We do that even on a smaller scale sometimes. We say, oh, Lord, I'm in this mess here, but if you will do this, I will do that. God is a debtor to no man. But here's what he goes on to say in light of that, because this is an, an impossible scenario. For no one can work and receive justification based on their merit. But he says something very extraordinary here. Something that we in, inevitably have difficulty with because it just seems so simple. He says, but to the one who does not work, the one who is not laboring for their justification, for their salvation, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And that's, you know, when we, when we have our difficult times and situations, we say, well, we feel ungodly. I'm just an ungodly person. Look at what I'm doing. This is, I can't overcome this. Well, congratulations, you, you've qualified for God's justification because God only justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify those that believe themselves to be righteous. It is not those who are well who are in need of a physician, but those who are sick. God justifies the ungodly. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is credited as righteousness you know what he's saying there to the one who is poor in spirit to the one who is spiritually bankrupt who understands that they can offer nothing to a holy God I have nothing to offer what can I offer what can I do in order to appease the justice of a holy God? I have nothing. So to the one who is poor in spirit, the one who is spiritually bankrupt, but believes in him who justifies those like himself, his faith is credited as righteousness. And Jesus talked about the poor in spirit, didn't he? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For those who believe, believe in the promises of God through the gospel that are contained in the gospel of Christ, everything that he accomplished, believing, 
what he did, something outside of yourself. And that's the thing when, you, when we talk about faith. We, our faith is in Christ. It is, it is in someone outside of ourselves. It is not in, in how well we're doing. It is not in our performance. We don't receive assurance by looking at ourselves and checking our boxes. Our assurance is outside of ourselves. It's in another, and it's in Christ. We believe in him. And through faith, his righteousness credited to us. And we are justified in the sight of God, declared to be not guilty. I don't feel justified. I don't feel holy. It's not about how you feel. It's about the reality of what you know to be true according to the scripture. We have our ups and downs. Our emotions go up and they go down. Sometimes we feel very close to the Lord and sometimes we don't. But the reality of it is we have to continually preach back to ourselves what we know to be true. And what we know to be true is that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies those who believe in him. You know, the psalmist had to preach back to himself as well. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. You have to preach back to yourself what you know to be true in the times of great despair. Because carrying the burden of your own sin or trying to continually labor unto the Lord causes further despair. You think of Christian who had his, in Pilgrim's Progress, who had the great burden. But when he went to the foot of the cross, the burden rolled away. The burden was gone. And he said, free, I'm free. The very thing that brings our freedom is recognizing that our assurance is in another. His performance, not mine, and not yours. So then he calls David as a witness. And this is very significant, obviously, because of, of how David was revered among the Jews, the great king. But you think of David, and you think of all that he wrote about the law of God. If you hold your place there, just as an example, turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we will just jump in here at verse 97. Think of what David is saying here. You know, you have the longest chapter in all of Scripture. That's all about the law of God. Here's what he says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. If you think of David and, and, and the things that he writes on the law of God in Psalm 19, which is expressing his love for the law of God, and we think to ourselves, well, David is after the law of God, so maybe it's something different than what Abraham was was dealing with as far as what was required of him. But yet David is the very one 
who says in Psalm 32, which is what Paul is quoting for here, uh, for us here, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. He doesn't say, think of, think of all the assurances that you can have because of keeping the law of God and, and obeying. He doesn't say any of that. He loves the law of God and he loves the law of God not to earn salvation. He loves the law of God because of his salvation. He desires to please God and, and these are the very things that are pleasing to the Lord and his heart's desire is to do those things. He does them because of his salvation, because of his justification, not in order to, not to gain it, not to earn it. He says, blessed are those. You could say, happy are those privileged are those those who have received this divine favor favored are they privileged are those whose lawless deeds the very the very deeds that were against the law of God their violations of it privileged favored happier are those whose violations of God's law have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. John Gill, he writes this, Such whom God justifies by imputing the righteousness of His Son to them, He removes their iniquities from them, which is meant by their being forgiven, and that as far as the east is from the west... He casts them behind his back and into the depths of the sea so that they shall never be found. Such whom he clothes with the robe of righteousness and garments of salvation, their sins are covered from the eye of divine justice and shall never be seen or be, or be brought against them to their condemnation and therefore they must be happy persons. End quote. And this is, this is the great joy that David is bringing out. He's saying, your sins have been veiled, they've been covered, and, and divine justice is no longer against you. And God doesn't impute your sins to your account any longer. And why? Because they were imputed to another. We talk about the great exchange, right? Our sins, not the sins that you've committed until the time that you were converted, all your sins were imputed to another. And he satisfied the justice of God for you. And his perfect righteousness, his perfect conformity to the law of God is now credited to you, to your account. And so divine justice is no longer against you. But now you've received divine love. Do you know that when we, we look at the love of God and you have like John 17, for example, and Jesus says, you loved me before the world was. What kind of wonderful inexpressible love that that is that the father has for the son and yet that's the very same love that God has for you because you are in the son and divine justice is no longer against you so David says blessed is the man blessed are those and how is it that David could say this David can say this because he is the man he knows this blessing we talk about David and we say that David was a man after God's own heart. We know that. 
We hear that often. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. David attempted to cover up his sin. David was the one who numbered Israel, and because of him disobeying the Lord and being in rebellion, doing that, committing that very act, 70,000 of the people died. Because of his sin with Bathsheba and everything that took place there, there was the great turmoil in his own home. This is one who has fallen into grievous sin. And there was no works that he could perform. In Psalm 51, he says, if it was sacrifices you wanted, I would do it. What's he saying? If there was anything that I could do, I would do it. But you desire a broken and a contrite heart. And so David says, appealing to the very grace of God in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. No matter how great David's sin was, God's grace was greater. For you, dear Christian, your sin, your continued struggles with whatever sin it may be are not greater than the grace of God in Christ. They're not greater than the work that Christ has accomplished for you. This is the consistent teaching in all of Scripture. You have Abraham before the law. You have David after the law. And the consistent teaching is that a man is justified, made right before God by faith and by faith alone. We're tempted to fall into despair and sorrow because of our struggles, our lack of devotion to the Lord. We say, I don't pray enough. I don't obey enough. I don't study God's word enough. I don't give him thanks enough. I still struggle with my sin. Oh, Lord, how often do I fail? And what are we doing? We keep looking at us. But you know the wonderful thing? Jesus prayed enough. Jesus obeyed enough. Jesus gave thanks to the Father enough. Jesus honored the Father with his life, and that was enough. And it is his merit, his work, his life, his death that satisfies the justice of God for you. This is what our hope is in. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that we have a sure hope, a steadfast hope, an anchor for our souls. Because it is outside of us. And in closing, this is, these are the very things that we need to remember. Your salvation, your justification before God is outside of you. Your hope is in another. And if we can allow that to, to reach into our minds and allow it to flow down to our hearts, then you can have that assurance. You can have that joy. You can rejoice greatly in the Lord. What are we supposed to do? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever? We don't only enjoy Him in the life to come, we enjoy Him now. Isaiah did. Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. You are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, dear friends. And you are held and you are preserved, and you will never be lost. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the assurance that it gives us 
as it causes us to look away from ourselves and to look unto Christ. Brother, he was the perfect one. He was the one who was truly righteous, who obeyed perfectly. Father, we, we ask that you would encourage our hearts with this, with this text, that you would comfort us and give us peace, Father, knowing that our reliance, our hope is in him, not in ourselves. Thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for his life and for his death, for his resurrection, for his work as our mediator. Thank you for the Spirit of God who perfects our worship to you. We know we don't worship you rightly. We know we don't love you rightly, as you should be. But thank you for the work of the Spirit of God who perfects our worship, who perfects our expressions of love to you. And thank you. Thank you, Father, that one day we will do this right. We will be perfected, the very thing that we desire when you call us home. Do you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, amen.